Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. Had gotten kind of tied up and they tripped up. And what happened after that was kind of formative. It was a beautiful thing. Augustino stood up and she invited Nikki Hamlin to come and finish the race. Afterward, this quote shows up from Nikki Hamlin. When I went down, it was like, what's happening? Why am I on the ground? Hamlin told the press, and, and suddenly there's this hand on my shoulder like, get up, get up, we have to finish this. I'm so grateful for Abby for doing that for me. That girl is the Olympic spirit right there. It's that one sentence that stands out from the quote. And it's that Hamblin was grateful to this competitor who helped her finish the race. She's recognizing in a spirit of gratitude that she's saying, I never would have finished it if it weren't for her. If she hadn't helped me, I wouldn't have been able to finish this race. And I wonder this morning if it's the essence of what the church needs to become. Those who don't see uh, the others around them as competitors, but as teammates that they can help finish the race, so to speak. You know how it goes. You and I, we get worn down through the course of this life. It's the pressures of life, the pressures of the world around us, the things they kind of bear down upon us. And so we at times need someone else to come alongside of us. We cannot do this alone. And yet the contemporary mood of the day is such that uh, the Christian is kind of this lone wolf. He goes out on his own. He does his things on his own. The truth of the matter is that the lone wolf gets eaten. The Christian who lives on his own independently of the body of Christ does not survive. We need one another. As Paul is writing and penning this letter to the Philippians, he's writing to a church divided. And he's saying things like this to them in Philippians chapter 2. He's saying, I I make my joy complete by being of one mind. Hey, I want Yodia and I want Syntyche to get along together in the Lord. You're divided. And I love you, but you cannot be alone. You cannot be split. I need you to cross the finish line together. And as we open up this epistle in Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11, I think this is what we're going to see, that gospel partners pray because they care about the progress of others. Gospel partners pray for one another because they care about the Christ-centered progress that's happening in their brothers and sisters. The note this morning for us is we should pray for one another because we should care deeply about the progress of our brothers and sisters here at Gospel Community Church or at the church at large to cross the finish line well. I think he gives us this idea in two different places, two different movements. In verses 3 through 7, we see that partnership is about the gospel. 
This idea that Paul has bound up in these verses about how they're partners in the gospel, it's bound up in that gospel concept. And then in verses 8 through 11, that partnership is about finishing well. It's about finishing this race well. I'm going to start with this first idea that partnership is about the gospel. Look at verses 3 through 7 of Philippians chapter 1. Paul says this, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will, be, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and in the confirmation of the gospel. Paul prays first in verses 3 through 5 with joy and with thanksgiving. He invites us, as it were, into his prayer closet. And first in verse 3, he tells us that he thanks God in all of his remembrance of these Philippians. That's a hard thing to do. Imagine just anyone in your mind, and you cannot always make remembrance with thanksgiving for every person that you know decently well, right? There are some things that are hard to thank, be thankful for. If you know someone well enough, you'll see their sinful tendencies. You'll see their sinful heart. And so it's hard to be thanks are giving thanks for them or thankful for them because of that kind of limitation. But notice that what Paul, that's what Paul is describing. Paul is affectionate for these Philippians, and he's choosing to see God's work in them and his thanksgiving for them. Even though he knows they're a house divided, even though he knows that these people aren't getting along quite as well as they could, he's not frustrated. He's choosing before the throne of God to be thankful for them. But that's not it. He's also joyful. Look at verse 4. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with what? With joy. Paul has this giddiness before the throne of God about these Philippians. It's not a begrudged labor for him to pray. It is a supplication before his heavenly Father marked by delight. He submits requests on their behalf and remembers them with love and affection. And I wonder if we stop and consider our last season of prayer, was it marked by thanksgiving and joy for other partners in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Was it begrudging? Was it simply, well, my small group member asked me to pray for this, so I better do it. Is it your delight to take the cares and concerns of your brothers and sisters before your heavenly Father and place them at His feet and say, Lord, you do with this what you see fit. I desire that you be formed in this brother or in this sister. But Paul gives us a reason for this joyful thanksgiving before the Lord in verse 5 that the Philippians are these gospel partners. He says in verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. See, that word partnership might be familiar to some of you who are nerdy like me. You like words. The original Greek word is that word koinonia. 
It's that word that we talk about, fellowship, in the New Testament. Paul has uh, a commonality with these Philippians, not because of their life situation or anything else. It has to do with their commonality in Christ and his death and burial and resurrection, this commonality in the gospel that they too have found the remedy for their sin in Jesus. If you know anything about the Philippians, they were a military colony. They were uh, kind of a base for a, a military presence there. Paul was a bookish nerd, right? There's not much commonality between those two groups, but the commonality that struck here in this book of Philippians is Jesus himself. Look at this confidence that he has as he describes in verses 6 and 7. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. See, Paul is sure that they will continue unto the return of Jesus. He's convinced that these Philippian believers will cross the finish line, not because they're resilient or holy or more spiritually attuned or whatever else it might be, but because God finishes what he starts. Maybe you're like me and you walk around your house and you see all of the unfinished projects that you started, right? We finished a basement a few years ago and there's this pole that I still haven't wrapped. It's been like three years and it's just mocking me every time I see it. Some of us are like that. We start projects and we look at our workbench and there's 15 unfinished things that are there waiting for us. Your God does not spin it or does not start what he does not intend to finish. Your God will bring to completion the thing that he has begun a work in. He will bring all of us who have placed faith in Jesus to a perfect completion in Christ. Paul tells us why he's convinced this is the case on behalf of these Philippian believers in verse 7. He gives us a, a, a kind of a how he thinks about it, he gives us a how he feels about it, and then he gives the basis for that in verse 7. Look what he says, it's right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. See, Paul knows it. When he says it's right for me to feel this way about you, it's actually, ironically, about his thinking It's this thought that's in his mind. Paul knows that God will complete his work, but then he feels it in verse 7, because I hold you in my heart. The the heart is the seat of the thoughts and emotions, and Paul's thinking about how he feels about these Philippians, that he feels this commonality with them, but it's rooted in what he says, that they are partakers of grace with him. You are all partakers with me of grace in my imprisonment, and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. How is Paul so sure? Because these men and women have suffered with him. They've suffered with him in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. It's as if they're in the very prison cell he's writing from with him. They're so attached to him. This morning, we recognize that I'm going to step out of my purview here and recognize that I'm not one to talk about trees intelligently, much less anything intelligently, but I'm going to venture out here. Trees have roots and fruits, right? That's, we all, we're all on the same. I, I passed the test. Good. Trees have roots and fruits. 
They put roots down into the ground to soak up water and uh, you know, nutrients from the soil so that they can translate that plus sunlight to make fruit. And this morning, as we look at what Paul is saying here, he's talking about roots and fruits. He's talking about these kind of putting down roots into the gospel, roots into the message of Jesus, and producing this fruit of confirmation and defense. And Paul is saying, I'm confident that God will finish what he started because I see roots and I see fruits. See, Christian partnership should be gospel-rooted and joy-producing. Christian partners should be gospel-rooted. Paul says that there are partners in the gospel. In verse 5, if we were to kind of turn over to 1 John chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Paul, John writes, he says, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We have fellowship together, not based upon our commonality, not because we're all uh, white middle-class people. We have fellowship together because we are all in Christ. That's the commonality that we have. Our togetherness is rooted in the gospel. Just to be clear, that's, that's why we do membership. Just as an aside this morning, membership is us locking arms with one another saying, we're going to join this task together as we're saying the same things about Jesus Christ. When we try to do partnership without the gospel, it ends up just being the Elks Club or some other club that you might belong to. Whether it's a, you know, a, a Cincinnati Bengals fan club or their Sam's Club membership or whatever else it is, there's all kinds of commonalities that we might have. But in Christ, all of those things are subservient to this commonality that we have in that all-encompassing love of Jesus that everything else takes a back seat to our, the primacy of the gospel in Christ, the, the forefrontedness of Jesus' life and death and resurrection for us. See, the lordship of Jesus trumps all of our other agendas so that we can be together, so that we can have community and fellowship. And truth is, this morning, you can't come to gospel community or any other church, much less, and have true fellowship if you're not in Christ. The access to our fellowship comes through a commonality in Jesus. It's not just that Christian partnership is gospel-rooted. Christian partnership should produce joy. And Paul says he's making his prayer for the Philippians with joy. You ever notice that joy is like a much better motivator than duty? Give me someone who's motivated by joy, and they'll do 10 times as much work as someone who's motivated by duty. It's just the way we work. It's the way we operate. See, our partnership is defined by joy. Members here at Gospel, if I could just talk to you directly, I hope you enjoy one another. I hope you delight to pray for the other members at Gospel Community Church. I hope that you so delight to see Christ formed in them that you pray like crazy for them. I hope that you ask time and time again before the throne of your Heavenly Father for on their behalf that they might be shaped to the image of Christ. I hope that you ask them, how can I pray for you? How can I bear your burden? with you? How can I sustain you in God's grace? How can I encourage you as the day draws near? 
And that as you carry that burden back to God's throne room, you are met with deep, soul-satisfying joy. Joy to thank God for your brother's progress. Joy that the last request was granted by an all-gracious God. Joy to see Jesus' heart formed in another. See, if we're together in Christ, let's be for each other in intercession for one another. Is that right? If we're bound together through the gospel, to carry each other to the finish line. And notice that Paul's not finished about this concept of prayer. In fact, he hasn't even told us how he prays yet. In verses 8 through 11, this partnership becomes about finishing well. Look at what he says. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Notice that Paul yearns for these Philippians. That sounds like something you might hear in a Louis L'Amour album or something. It's a, a strange word to us, yearn. Let's say that he deeply desires that they thrive in Christ. And notice, notice that he qualifies it here with this affection of Christ Jesus. He yearns for them with the literally the bowels of Christ Jesus. Now, what specifically does he pray for? What do you pray for? Too many times our prayers for others are a laundry list of the things that they face. I pray for their job. I pray for their kids. I pray for their wife. I pray for their finances. Notice how Paul prays. Verse 9, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more. Paul prays that they love not just love on occasion, but they love increasingly more and more, that it abounds. It's easy for us to love once, isn't it? We can love anyone once, but to love consistently is of the Spirit. It's not just that he asks that they love more and more, that they also have knowledge and discernment. That's what he says there in verse 9. Uh, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. We notice the call is to love with knowledge and discernment. If love is holy, it means it must be discerning and wise. As we increase in knowledge and discernment, we have more capacity for love. And let's just kind of tune our ears to that for a second, Christian, because our Christian world right now is telling us that your knowledge makes you have to be less loving. The more knowledge you have, the less requirement you have to be a loving person. And what Paul is telling us here is the way to be pure and blameless is to have increasing love and combine it with knowledge and discernment. And we take the landscape of evangelicalism right now. This, my friends, is rare. Knowledge with love. already talked a little bit about this Philippian problem, their unity. They 
have this issue where Paul is telling them that he wants them to be of one mind, that he's telling Yudia and Syntyche to get along together. And so this call to love with discernment isn't just a prayer for the Philippians. It's actually a kind of directive toward the Philippians. Paul is praying for exactly what he's writing to accomplish. Do you get that? He's praying for this thing, and he's not content just to pray. He actually wants to initiate this thing by writing this letter called Philippians. It's a showing of the subtle balance between sovereignty and responsibility that Paul is walking here. He's saying, I'm praying to God to bring about this thing, but I'm actually writing to you because it's your responsibility. It's not just that they have love and they have knowledge. Verse 10, it kind of culminates so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Paul wants them to approve excellent things. It's not just a, a statement about taste. He's not just, uh, you know, condoning the right movies and the right music or whatever else. This is tied to the character of these Philippian people, that they are prepared for the return of Jesus, that they would be pure and blameless for Christ. Paul's saying, I want you to approve the moral things, the good things, the right things. I want you to be about uh, kind of putting your stamp of approval on the right things of life that God has put his stamp of approval on. It kind of culminates again in verse 11, that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. See, there's the culmination, right? We would so have this approval of what's excellent that it would bring honor and glory to Jesus who already lived out all those things. The first and foremost of humanity, the second Adam, the one who truly displayed the fruits of the Spirit in constant repetition on this world. When we live like Christ, we honor Christ. He becomes, as Paul would say, the firstborn amongst many brothers. I have a brother who's older than me. He's five years older than me. And there's parts of him that I so desire to be like. It's always been that way. So from the time I was the youngest child, there's this, this desire to be like him. And it's an honor to him when I take on those characteristics that he has shown me. In the same way, when we see the life of Christ and we put on those characteristics, it brings glory and honor to him as only he could accomplish that in us. See, Paul here is praying so that these brothers and sisters might cross the finish line also. We might even view like Paul having tied a rope around his waist and tying it to the other believers in Philippi and saying, come with me, let's cross the finish line together. I'm going to sustain you through prayer. I'm going to keep you. But we want to just put the pause on that illustration for just a second, because we want to notice something that's happening in here. See, gospel partnership works toward mutual holiness for Jesus's return, but that it's empowered by Jesus himself. Now, there's something of a contradiction here in our text that we may not have noticed. In fact, there's maybe not a contradiction so much as a, a tension. It's worth noting, as you read the Bible, the tensions in the passage that you find are worth diving into and worth teasing out. This week, I was in Romans chapter 2, and, and Paul says that God shows no partiality. But I know that in Romans chapter 9, he's going to quote, and he's going to say that, Jacob have I loved, 
and Esau have I hated. How is that not partial? Well, you got to stick around for when we preach the book of Romans to find that one out, right? It's the contradictions or the tensions in the text that actually bring us into the meaning therein. And I think there's one of those here in our text this morning. There's a kind of tension here. Paul tells us that he's confident that God will complete these Philippians for the day of Christ. He tells us that in verse 6, right? Read it with me, verse 6. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now, what he says later, though, is that he's praying for these specific behaviors. He keeps praying for them. Verse 10, he says, so that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Notice it's there right on the face of our text, because in both of those places, Paul mentions the day of Christ. It kind of links those two ideas together. See, we might be tempted to think that Paul is saying he's confident, but then showing that he's really not. He's saying he's confident, verse 6, but he's really relying upon his prayer. I think we can eliminate that option. I think what Paul is showing us is this confidence in a God who completes what he finishes as he works in his people to help accomplish it. Think about what's happening here. Paul is so burdened for these Philippian believers that he's carrying their burdens before the Lord. And God hears that prayer that's stated in line with his will and is answering it affirmatively. So he's using Paul to accomplish the thing he had predestined to happen before the foundations of the earth. You see what's happening? The intertwinement of us as believers as we carry the cares and concerns of others to before the throne of grace. That might be the means by which God actually accomplishes his good and perfect will. He starts with this verse 6. He has confidence that what was begun in faith will be completed. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Paul exhibits an utter confidence that those who genuinely start in the gospel will also finish in the gospel, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. See, the truth is that if Jesus has carried your sins into his tomb, he'll surely take you out alive with him. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 6. He says that if we're truly united with Jesus in his death, then we will surely also be united with him in his resurrection. That he won't leave us in the deadness of his tomb. That he will surely bring us to new life. Christian, if your hope has stayed in the in Christ, through the thick and thin of life, you should have confidence that this will lead to your eternal life as well. And so on the basis of this confidence, Paul prays with urgency, and it's not in conflict, it's actually in submission to that truth. See, what was begun in faith is continued in faith. Paul's faith is expressed in his prayer for the Philippians. The Philippians are continuing in their faith and their purity and blamelessness for the day of Christ, such that Jesus is honored. You know, Paul says somewhere else in 1 Corinthians, he says that without sanctification or life change, we might call it, no one will see the Lord truth is this morning that if 
you're content to just have made a decision and then go on your merry way, living your life as you want and as you desire, truth is you might not actually be in right standing with the God you claim to believe. If our faith is true, it affects us down to our bones. We won't be content to simply have Jesus as our Savior. We'll have him as our Lord. We won't just desire his sacrificial work on our behalf. We'll desire his life-giving words to show us how to live. There was a a writer, I think it was in the 1800s, by the name of J.C. Ryle, maybe in the early 1900s. And he writes this in his, his book, entitled Holiness. Our quote is on the screen. It says, most men hope to go to heaven when they die, but few, it may be feared, take the trouble to consider whether they would enjoy heaven if they got there. Heaven is essentially a holy place. Its inhabitants are all holy. Its occupations are all holy. To be really happy in heaven, it is clear and plain that we must be somewhat trained and made ready for heaven while we were on earth. He goes on and he says, what could an unsanctified unsanctified man do in heaven if by any chance he got there? No man can possibly be happy in a place where he is not in his element and where all around him is not congenial to his tastes, habits, and character. When an eagle is happy in an iron cage... When a sheep is happy in the water, when an owl is happy in the blaze of noonday sun, when a fish is happy on the dry land, then and not till then will I admit that an unsanctified man could be happy in heaven. Ryle's putting his finger on something, isn't he? He's saying, if you're not trained to holiness and righteousness here and now, what business do you have being in the presence of holy things? How, how, how are we to, to just enjoy that? We will be utterly miserable if we're still in our sinfulness in the presence of what is holy. We will be shriveling in the presence of the holy God. See, if we are to be ready for Jesus' return, we must be filled with faith. We must be pure and blameless, as Paul is describing here. If Jesus is coming back at this time to judge those, the living and the dead, we have to be slanted to righteousness or or trained in righteousness, I should say. You might stop and consider how that happens. This is the secret of this text, I think, right? Look at verse 11. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise God. How do you do it? How do you put on righteousness? You trust in the gospel. Jesus' death and burial and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. You trust that Jesus will sanctify you through his spirit. You work diligently. Paul will go on later to say in Philippians chapter 2, he'll say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it's God who works in you. You work. You, You press into this purity and blamelessness. You fight sin. You put it to death, as John Owen would say. See, the truth is this morning that if you you and I are in Christ, whatever he started, he'll complete. He'll finish. 
when he's resurrected us, when he's when we've been crucified with him, he'll we'll be resurrected with him. He'll finish what he started. See, all of this is a reminder for us to pray for one another, isn't it? We often pray for merely physical things, you know? We pray for Aunt Susie's toenail or Jimmy's dog or Tim's job or whatever else it might be. And these things, I suppose, aren't bad to pray for. In fact, we are physically embodied people. So praying for someone's physical ailments is not bad. But notice what when Paul prays, not just here in Philippians, but also in Thessalonians and in other places throughout the New Testament, he emphasizes the spiritual priority in his prayers. See, praying for spiritual priorities trains our eyes to see the gospel at work. If we're content to just pray for the physical things and not see the spiritual realities behind them, maybe we're missing something. What if Aunt Susie's uh, shingles or gout or whatever, if it were healed too soon, what if it were to stifle the growth and progress the Spirit wanted to make in her? What if Tim's job situation that was so hard and, and was a real trial to them, what if the Lord desired to do something new in Tim through his job situation? We pray to that end in submission to the Lord's will, not as we would will, but as he would will, right? It's with that in mind that I, I want to put forth a few patterns of prayer. In fact, I say proper patterns for praying praying for partners or something like that, right? The four Ps, proper patterns for partner praying. I don't know. I got three keeps. Keep a list. Keep your word. Keep the gospel. Keep a list. Make consistent note of what you're praying for for others. Mark it down. And then review it on occasion, whether it's daily, weekly, monthly, whatever else it might be, so that you can see how the Lord is faithful to answer those prayers. One of the most beautiful things we have as the body of Christ is to look back on our history and see how the Lord's been faithful to us. And if we can do that in community with one another and say, I've seen how the Lord has been faithful to Aunt Susie. I've seen how the Lord has been faithful to Tim. We celebrate God's goodness. We celebrate that the Lord hears us, that the Lord responds to us. So keep a list. Keep your word. And don't tell somebody you're going to pray for them and then just not do it. The only way I could know that happens is if I myself may have on occasion done that, right? One of the best things someone has advised me to do is to pray immediately for someone. Uh, honestly, sometimes we throw prayer requests around so willy-nilly. Some of the best thing we can do is just pray right then in the moment um, to pray for that individual, pray with that individual at times. Uh, if you're texting back and forth, say, I'll pray for you, and then take two minutes to, to pray for that individual, not just to fulfill your obligation, but because the concern is real in the moment. And as the Spirit makes you aware in the future, then you pray more. 
You know, it's funny to me how often when I pray for something, I, I'm reminded to ask that brother or sister to talk to them about it. It reminds me uh, kind of as I've carried these concerns before the Lord, and I've learned to care about them because I know the Lord cares about them, and I know this person cares about them, I'm reminded to ask them about it. Too often the opposite is true. I fail to ask others because I haven't given prayerful consideration to those things. So keep a list, keep your word, and most importantly, keep the gospel at the center. Don't let your prayer be soulless. Don't let your prayer be void of gospel thinking. Pray to the end that Paul prays here. This is a great prayer. In fact, I would encourage you parents or or grandparents or whoever else you might be to memorize verses 9 through 11 and to use this as a format for prayer for your children or for your spouse or for yourself, that you would pray that they would abound more and more in love that they would have more and more knowledge and discernment, that they would be able to approve what is excellent and so that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness for the day of Jesus's return. That is an excellent prayer. So keep the gospel at the center so that we are preparing ourselves for the day of Jesus's return so that we would be clinging to the truth of Jesus's death and resurrection In short, help your brother or sister cross the finish line. Sustain them in prayer. Don't be shy to let them know how you've prayed. It can be boastful, but you can navigate that. Encourage them. Say, I've been praying for you. How is this going? You know, the evangelical church today is so shy in weird places. And I wonder if we had a a true gospel rootedness that we wouldn't be so shy about talking about our patterns of prayer. Now, Jesus gave us this warning in Matthew 6 to to not uh, shout it from the street corners what we're praying, uh, to go into our room and pray quietly and silently. But I don't think that shut the door for us to talk to brothers and sisters about the ways that we pray, to encourage them, most notably because Paul tells the Philippians, how he prays for them. And he tells the Thessalonians how he prays for them. And he tells the Romans how he prays for them. He's not shy about it. If the scriptures were so shy about prayer, Acts chapter 4 wouldn't be included now, would it? Let's put on patterns of prayer. Let's help our brothers and sisters cross the finish line. Let's honor our Savior as we bear one another's burdens as he's borne ours before the Father. Let me pray. Lord, I pray now that you would allow us to be men and women of prayer. Help us to bear these burdens. Help us to be those who help others cross the finish line, as it were. And Lord, I pray for us, Gospel Community Church, I pray that we would abound more and more in love. That we would have knowledge and discernment combined with our love. That we would be able to approve what is excellent and right and good. And finally, Lord, that you would fill us with the fruit of righteousness for the day of Jesus' return. That you would receive all honor and glory in it. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.